2: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: Welcome, everybody, to to the Heritage Foundation uh, for our fourth in our Preserve the Constitution series, uh, Religious Liberty in the Trump Administration. So on, I'm John Malcolm, by the way. I'm the uh, Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional Government here at Heritage. If you haven't silenced your cell phones, please do so. So on September the 23rd, President Trump delivered an important speech on religious freedom at the United Nations. He said, quote, our founders understood that no right is more fundamental to a peaceful, prosperous and virtuous society than the right to follow one's religious convictions. He added that, too often, people in positions of power preach diversity while silencing, shunning, or censoring the faithful. True tolerance means respecting the right of all people to express their deeply held religious beliefs. How right he is. During the last administration, religious adherents felt somewhat besieged. While the Obama administration was prepared to honor freedom of worship, freedom of religion was another matter entirely. Obama administration officials preached that tolerating religious adherence was great, so long as they confined their faith to houses of worship and didn't try to adhere to their sincerely held and fervently held religious beliefs at their jobs and in their communities. The administration argued in Hosanna-Tabor case that it was okay for the government to interfere with the faith and mission of religious organizations and churches. They issued a mandate under Obamacare requiring religious organizations to provide abortion-inducing drugs, sterilization, and contraceptives free of charge to their employees in direct violation of the organization's beliefs. They revoked a grant from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops which had used the funds for over a 10-year period to combat human sex trafficking because of the bishop's objections to abortion. I could go on, but you get the point. This administration has taken a different approach, and we have three outstanding speakers with us today to tell us about it. I will keep their introduction short, I can assure you, much shorter than they deserve, so that you will have more time to hear from them and less from me. First, we will hear from Eric Dryband. Eric currently serves as the Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Rights Division in the Department of Justice. Prior to that, he was a partner at the Jones Day Law Firm here in Washington, D.C. He has also served as a special counsel at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, as a Deputy Administrator at the U.S. Department of Labor's Wage and Hours Division, and as an Associate Independent Counsel under Ken Starr in connection with the Whitewater investigation. He received his law degree from Northwestern University, a Master's of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School, and his undergraduate degree from Princeton University. He also clerked for Judge William Bauer on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. After Eric, we will hear from Reed Rubenstein. Reed is currently the Acting General Counsel at the Department of Education. Before transitioning over to the Department of Education, he was a Deputy Associate Attorney General in the Justice Department. Before joining the administration, Reed was a partner at the law firm of Dinsmore and Stahl, and he also served as a Senior Vice President in charge of litigation at Cause of Action, a public interest law firm. Before that, he served as a Senior Counsel at the Environment, Technology, and Regulatory Affairs, for the US Chamber of Commerce. He got his undergraduate degree in political science and philosophy, his master's degree in political science, and his law degree, all from the University of Michigan. Go Wolverines. (laughs) Finally, we will hear from Roger Severino. Roger is the director of the Office for Civil Rights at the US Department of Health and Human Services. Prior to joining HHS, Roger was my colleague here at Heritage, where he served as the director of the DeVos Center for Religious and Civil Society. Prior to joining Heritage, Roger served for several years in the office uh, that Eric now heads, the Civil Rights Division, where he litigated cases involving, among other things, the Fair Housing Act, the uh, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, and titles two and six of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. He also previously served as chief operating officer and legal counsel for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Roger received his JD degree from Harvard, a master's degree in public policy from Carnegie Mellon, and his bachelor's degree from USC. With that, Eric, the floor is yours. Um,
3: thank you, John. Um, I want to begin primarily by talking about the Department of Justice's work on religious liberty since 2017. Uh, The Attorney General, William Barr, has emphasized that religious freedom is our first freedom, it is the first freedom mentioned in the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment itself. And the Department's efforts in respect to religious freedom uh, really began with the President's executive order on religious freedom that he issued in May of 2017. Uh, The President directed uh, the Attorney General to develop guidance. Uh, for the various federal departments and agencies on religious liberty and Attorney General Sessions, former Attorney General Sessions, issued a memorandum on federal laws that protect religious liberty and issued issued that memorandum in October of 2017. Uh, The Attorney General's memorandum, which is still binding on the Department of Justice, lays out 20 key principles. And while it's too long, those are too many for me to mention here, I do want to talk about a few of the key principles that we are working on and will continue to work on at the Department of Justice. Uh, The first is simply the principle of equal treatment. Uh, And this is the idea that religious individuals and groups and institutions should be treated equally and should not face legal disabilities because they are religious in nature. Uh, Our work in this regard grows out of the Supreme Court's decision in the Trinity Lutheran case. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that it was a violation of the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment to exclude a church daycare uh, from a state program uh, because the institution itself was religious. Uh, We have taken uh, the guidance from the Supreme Court and the Attorney General, and we have applied that in many, many cases uh, throughout the United States, especially in the area of school choice and other government benefits. Uh, And we have argued and will continue to argue that uh, governmental institutions cannot exclude religious people and institutions because of their religious identity and character. So I will talk about a few examples a couple of weeks ago, in a case called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, uh, the Solicitor General's office filed uh, a brief in support of uh, religious freedom from our point of view, arguing that a the so-called Blaine Amendment in Montana uh, violates the Constitution because, in that case, uh, religious schools were deprived of tax-advantaged scholarships merely because they are religious schools. These are programs that were otherwise made available Uh, throughout the state of Montana, uh, but not to religious schools, and it's our position, and we hope the Supreme Court will agree with us, uh, that that kind of program uh, unlawfully discriminates against religious institutions in violation of the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. Um, We generally argue in, in that brief and in others that the principles of equal treatment include protecting religious liberty, that is, that individuals and organizations should not be pressured to abandon their religious faith. Uh, in order to to obtain or be eligible for some kind of government benefit, uh, that that citizens should be treated equally, that is, equal treatment for religious individuals and institutions. Uh, And we think that overall, by acting that way, the government can reduce strife in our society with respect to religious and non-religious individuals. Uh, We also filed just yesterday in the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit, a friend of the court brief, in a case called Carson versus Macon. And in that that brief we are making essentially the same argument that we are making in the supreme court of the united states in that case uh, the state of maine excludes religious schools from certain tuition programs uh, that we take the position in our brief and uh, we hope the first circuit will agree with us that that kind of exclusion violates uh, the free exercise clause of the first amendment we have a similar case pending in vermont as well where we filed a statement of interest in support of religious freedom there, in a case that we believe involves discrimination against uh, high school students in the state of Vermont. Secondly, uh, church autonomy, and I want to talk about this, this is very important. Um, the Department of Justice takes the position, consistent with the case that John mentioned, the Hosanna-Tabor case, that religious institutions uh, are entitled uh, to run their affairs as they deem appropriate. And I'll mention one case that, and, uh, that's currently pending, and uh, which a couple of weeks ago we filed a statement of interest in a case called Payne Elliott versus the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indiana. In that case, um, that case involves a, a plaintiff who was in a same-sex marriage, was a school teacher at a Catholic high school in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, the Archdiocese instructed the school that the school, if it was going to remain Catholic, could could not employ an individual. Uh, who um, was in a public same-sex marriage. The school discharged the individual, then settled with the the teacher. That former teacher at the school is suing the Archdiocese of Indianapolis in a tort law claim. And in our statement of interest, we argued that the church autonomy doctrine uh, and the freedom of association protections of the First Amendment protect the Catholic Church's right to determine, number one, how it's going to operate, and number two, how it's going to associate with people, in this case, how, how it will decide whether to associate or not with a particular Catholic high school in the case. In another case uh, called Believers in Christ versus the University of Iowa, we filed, and a federal court in Iowa agreed with us, Uh, in our statement of interest that uh, the deregistration of a Christian group uh, violated the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. In that case, this this student group called Believers in Christ had essentially a statement of its principles, or an oath, in which it it took the position that the the institution, the organization itself, adhered to traditional same-sex, I'm sorry, opposite-sex notions of marriage, and did not uh, agree with itself as a religious matter, same-sex marriage. The university uh, then deregistered, essentially deregistered the student group. The group sued. Uh, the district court agreed with us that such, a, such a, an action by the university that is to strip the student group of the rights and uh, opportunities to participate in campus life violated the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. The attorney general's memorandum also uh, expressed uh, his view about how the Religious Freedom Restoration Act should be implemented, and this is a federal law that generally speaking applies, requires strict scrutiny. Uh, of any kind of uh, uh, substantial burden on religious exercise. Um, in, in our position, I think, is reflected in something I expect Roger will talk about later, and that is in a case called Trump versus Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The Justice Department uh, recently filed a petition with the Supreme Court of the United States asking the Supreme Court to endorse the Department of Health and Human Services' rulemaking to protect conscience rights um, under under the statutes enacted by the department, of, uh, or enforced by the Department of Health and Human Services, and I'll leave that to Roger to talk about later. The, the general theme, though, as as John pointed out, is that we take a much um, a much different approach to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act than the prior administration did. And generally speaking, in in the uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania case, are taking the position that that law, enab- authorizes or enables the Department of Health and Human Services to enact conscience protections. Uh, with respect to things like contraception, abortifacients, and other, other things when people's religious faith um, uh, comes into play uh, with respect to objections they may have to otherwise neutral federal law requirements. Uh, I'll mention just a couple of other things real quickly, then turn it over to our other panelists, and then we'll open it up. Uh, The Justice Department also enforces Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which deals with religious um, anti-discrimination protections in employment. Uh, That law, of course, uh, requires, among other things, uh, reasonable accommodations for individuals' religious observance, the practice of their faith in the workplace. In addition, uh, we enforce the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. and Under the Department's Place to Worship initiative, we have doubled the number of investigations that we are bringing, as well as brought many lawsuits on behalf of religious institutions whose free exercise of religion has been burdened typically by land use regulations, for example, when they attempt to build a church or a mosque or a synagogue on a particular place uh, using a particular parcel of land. uh, We have, in several cases, uh, sought successfully relief for those individuals. Uh, In addition, in institutionalized settings, in particular prisons, Uh, Just We we have a very active uh, litigation practice there as well, and yesterday we announced a settlement with the Virginia Department of Corrections under the Institutionalized Persons Provisions of the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act regarding uh, kosher meals and access to congregant uh, worship for prisoners in the state institutions. And then finally, I'll just mention as well our hate crimes prosecutions. We at the Department of Justice and in the Civil Rights Division in particular prosecute the federal hate crimes laws, and those involve criminal prosecutions where there can be uh, arsons, uh, oftentimes mass shootings of individuals who are engaged in in places of worship or practicing their faith. Uh, And I'll mention just two cases that are currently pending. Uh, One involved a mass shooting uh, where 11 people were killed at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, and six other people were nearly killed in that case, and we are prosecuting that case criminally with the United States Attorney's Office. Um, And the the motive there was, uh, we allege, um, was anti-Semitic hatred towards the individuals who were worshiping uh, at a Jewish synagogue at the time they were killed. Similarly, we are prosecuting uh, a case uh, of Poway, California, uh, involving uh, a, a similar attack on a synagogue Uh, where an individual was killed, others injured uh, as well, and while they were practicing their faith. uh, And hate crime prosecutions, both religious hate crimes and others, are among the most important things that we do at the Department of Justice, and we take them very seriously. So with that, I'll turn it over to my colleagues. Thank you.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming out. Um, First, before I uh, get into the substance of what we're doing at the Department of Education, on behalf of our secretary, Betsy DeVos, I want to take a moment to thank and acknowledge uh, John and Heritage for their stalwart, really stalwart work these past many years. Creating the intellectual capital, the intellectual foodstuff, as if it were needed to support liberty and the rule of law. Many of the initiatives uh, that Secretary DeVos, our department, and the administration generally have undertaken had their origins or are founded or buttressed uh, by the publications and programs, especially including legal policy forums. Uh, that heritage is offered. The Trump administration has done great things. Our department has done great things to advance liberty, religious and otherwise, to protect and promote the rule of law, and to cabin the administrative state. And without heritage, we might not even be here. Certainly, we would not be as effective as we are. So John, thank you. Secretary DeVos, as you know, is a strong advocate for religious freedom and the rule of law under her leadership and her leadership team the department has taken a number of critical steps technical steps but critical steps to protect this first freedom first and recently and perhaps most significantly have been changes to the regulations uh, consensus regulations that apply to higher education under the higher education act there are Uh, As a result of Trinity Lutheran and uh, the Attorney General's memo that that Eric mentioned a moment ago, we undertook a regulatory review to determine how our Title IV regulations dealing with colleges and federal student aid uh, might affect the rights of faith-based organizations under the Free Exercise Clause and also those of students. And we reviewed these, we went through and we reviewed them and as a result of a negotiated rulemaking, made a series of changes. First, with respect to accreditation, that is the process by which Congress has given to private organizations the ability to, in effect, condition the eligibility of those organizations for student aid, we've made it clear that the religious mission must be taken into account to address the possibility that an accreditation organization might, for example, require a Christian college to, as part of awarding a master's in social work degree, uh, require counseling with respect to same-sex marriage, we've we've attempted to change the regulations. As a result of our work, consensus work with, with the industry, uh, by regulation, which is now out there for public comment, we encourage you to go take a look. Accreditation organizations must acknowledge the pervasive impact that a religious mission can have on a campus, while at the same time allowing them to ensure that there's a comprehensive curriculum. The regulations define religious mission as the published institutional mission that is approved by the governing body of the college and that includes or refers to or is predicated upon religious tenets, beliefs, or teachings. It allows these religious institutions, these religious colleges, these religious universities to seek a review if they get an adverse action, that is to say a denial of accreditation by uh, an organization because of a failure to respect religious mission. And they clarify that the Department of Education will always recognize, always recognize, the legal authorization of a college with a religious mission to operate when that institution is otherwise exempt from state requirements under state administrative or constitutional law. Coming out shortly will be what we call the um, religious, title four free, religious Freedom Title IV regs. Uh, the NPRM has not been published, but the consensus language is publicly available, so I can talk about it for just a moment. We're going through, we're deleting outdated regulatory language, presuming that members of religious orders have no financial need for purposes of eligibility under Title IV. We're modifying regulatory provisions that prohibit colleges from providing work-study employment involving the construction operation or maintenance of a facility for sectarian instruction or worship. We're replacing existing regulatory provisions with the statutory language to clarify that we take a very narrow view and that we read statutes the way they're written. And we're deleting provisions that exclude borrowers from receiving loan forgiveness under the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program if they're working for organizations, engaged in activities relating to religious instruction, worship, and other religious activities. These are all technical changes, as I said, but they're all going to have a very significant effect, cumulative effect, that will advance religious liberty on college campuses. The department, in all the things that we do, grant making, And in our work in uh, grant administration, we work to ensure the principles of religious liberty and religious equality are are faithfully executed and carried out and protected. Uh, In August of this year, working very closely with Eric and folks at the Department of Justice, we obtained an opinion from the uh, Office of Legal Counsel with respect to historically black colleges and universities. Turns out, the Department of Education was authorized by Congress to provide loans to these colleges and universities. However, the loans may not be made for any educational program activity or service related to sectarian instruction or religious worship or provided by a school or a Department of Divinity or to an institution in which a substantial portion of its functions is subsumed in a religious mission. That's Congress's sentence, not mine. It goes on for its quite a sentence. But that's what they said. Basically, no money for you, if, you're, you know, if it relates to religious activities. Our office, the Office of the General Counsel, uh, supported by the, the great work of, of, of Jed Brennan, who's sitting here today, reached out to the Department of Justice and said, hey, we think this is a problem. And in August, we received a memo back saying that, in fact, it is, that what Congress did is inconsistent with the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. So we're going to be taking appropriate action very, very soon. There are quite a lot of other things that we have done. Happy to you know, talk about in detail during questions or perhaps afterwards. But there are, there are two things I want to note. First, uh, the Secretary has been very, very outspoken uh, calling out anti-Semitism on college campuses at the uh, Justice Department's anti-Semitism um, program. Uh, She addressed it and and identified the BDS movement as as a very significant problem the department does not take Regulatory action. There's something called the first amendment, but her recognition is significant and consistent with everything else that we do and and finally I Want to let you know that we are working on a number of other initiatives uh, Which unfortunately we can't quite yet talk about to advance the principles of religious liberty and to ensure that this first freedom is fully protected. So looking forward to taking your questions and turn it now over to Roger. <clears throat> are
4: there any John Lennon fans? Beatles fans in the crowd? Yeah, there are a few. The song, Imagine, um, do you remember the lyrics? Imagine all the people. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no country. Nothing to live or die for, and no religion, too, right? That was the kind of pessimistic view of religion in civil society. Nothing to live or die for, right? He forgot the live part. He said nothing to kill or die for. But most people think about religion, it's something to live for. It's an organizing principle of people's lives, right? So what if we took John Lennon's thought experiment seriously? What if we said, what if there were no religion? What would America be like? Would it be a better place? Would it be a more humane place? Or would it be something different? Something different than, than what the founders imagined America to be, where it saw religion as a force for the public good that made society a virtuous society. In fact, a precondition for our country to be a republic at all was that we had a, a virtuous citizenry. And religion was a fundamental part of that. So when I listen to John Lennon, I have a a different thought in mind, right? So imagine if it was taken seriously and there was no Little Sisters of the Poor, right? So Little Sisters of the Poor exist literally to be there so that the elderly poor do not die alone. That's what they do. They don't care who you are, where you come from, so that you do not die alone. And they're driven by the religious impulse to be there, when nobody else would be there for them. Yet, our HHS and our federal government sought fit to say, Little Sisters of the Poor, you could no longer exist as that sort of organization <clears throat> if you refused to provide assistance to your fellow nuns to get contraceptives. That's, that's really what it was about. Nuns, you must help provide fellow nuns contraceptive coverage or you cannot serve the elderly poor in their dying days. It was on pains of millions of uh, dollars of fines if they would not follow the Obamacare contraceptive mandate. Meanwhile, Exxon, Pepsi were exempt because they were grandfathered in. So we had millions of people who were not under the mandate, but oh no no, little sisters of the poor You have to provide assistance with this contraceptive coverage. And by the way, if you know anything about nuns, they're not huge consumers of these services. So how do we get to a point in society where we thought the world may actually be a better place? Imagine a world without the little sisters of the poor. And that's what we were headed towards. And it took a Supreme Court intervention to actually stop it at least put the brakes on it for a time. Then we had to have rulemaking, which was spurred by the president himself. In a Rose Garden ceremony, he invited the Little Sisters up to the podium, said, we're finally going to take, get off your backs and leave you alone. And told HHS, what are you going to do about this? See what you could do with, with regulations. And we did. We took that instruction to heart. We issued regulations that protect the religious convictions and moral convictions of anybody who objects to the contraceptive mandate. Meanwhile, allowing for the mandate as it stood in the past, so it expanded the exemption beyond the very crab notion of the previous administration, where the ministry of Jesus Christ himself may not have qualified, because it was not a formal, organized religion at that time. You know, was 12 apostles enough to make it? I don't know, only only the IRS would know. (laughs) So we are in that position, and things have been changing ever since. And I want to hearken back that this is coming from the president himself. Just recently, when he spoke to the UN, he said that one of his highest priorities is religious freedom, and religious liberty. And he's come back to that theme repeatedly. We're getting at least one executive order per year on religious freedom. So we mentioned what Eric has done in DOJ, the wonderful work they've done there with the attorney general guidance. And Department of Education's done fantastic work. Labor's done excellent things. HHS has been sort of a ground zero on these issues because HHS 1 is so big, we have so many programs, and we touch so many lives on some very fundamental questions. When you get to the question of health and human services, there are many questions dealing with life and death. Life and death. And that's when the religious impulse really comes to the fore. Right? John Lennon notwithstanding, You cannot get rid of the religious impulse. It's part of human nature. So when we grapple with these questions of life and death, according to the founder's vision, that must be done with freedom, for you to reach your own conclusions without government coercion and certainly not government-funded discrimination. So we have a tradition of exempting Quakers from the Revolutionary War who would not take blood. Doctors who uh, uh, who do not want to prescribe lethal cocktails for duly convicted executions, right? We allow space for that. And after Roe v. Wade, when it comes to abortion, no doctor should be compelled to assist or perform an abortion against his or her will. That was the bipartisan nationwide consensus. Regardless of what you think about the legality of abortion, you should not force others to participate in it, pay for it, refer for it. Now, that message, unfortunately, didn't get through. Congress passed these laws that ratified the will of the people, this consensus. But for years, these laws were not enforced. When people sought relief in court, courts were saying you don't have a private right of action. And in many times, these statutes are enforced exclusively by my office, the Office for Civil Rights at HHS. In the preceding eight years before President Trump we're receiving a little over one complaint, 1.25, just over one per year under our conscience authorities. We're receiving 343 in the last fiscal year. Now, what could be the explanation for that? A couple explanations. Either there were no violations whatsoever for all these years. It's one possibility, but I think the more logical one is we announced that we're open for business, that you have these rights, we're willing to enforce them, we're there for you. And people listened, and people heard, and people responded. And that is the reality. We recently issued several notices of violation, one specifically on this question of abortion. This was the University of Vermont Medical Center that had a nurse who had objected to her bosses, saying, I could not, as a matter of faith and moral conviction, assist in abortions. And her conscience was respected for a time. The medical center started doing abortions in earnest. She was told one day um, to come in for a procedure. She thought and reasonably believed it was going to be for the after effects of miscarriage. She walks in. The doctor looks at her and says, don't hate me. Because he knew that this was going to be an abortion and that she objected. At that moment, she raised her objection again and was denied, even though the hospital could have switched out with another nurse. This was no emergency circumstance, this was pre-planned, she could have been accommodated even at that late moment. Her job was on the line, and potentially her license to practice medicine at all. She relented and suffered a severe traumatic moral injury of moral injury that people suffer, when you have that crisis of conscience, which we should be free to answer these fundamental fundamental questions of life. But not only that, it violated the law. So we investigated the case and issued a notice of violation to the University of Vermont. They've given us some encouraging signs as to uh, their willingness to reconsider their policies. But we stand ready for any eventuality, because we're here to enforce the law, as we did with the state of California, There, they passed a law called the Fact Act that was targeted targeted against pregnancy resource centers. Again, these organizations, many of which are faith-based, that exist to provide women's options other than abortion. State of California went after them, required them to effectively refer to free or low-cost abortion services in the state of California, and to otherwise post disclaimers in all of their advertisements, meanwhile, exempting, as the Supreme Court said curiously. Uh, all sorts of other organizations that are in the same field that do not engage in abortion. Supreme Court said it likely violated the First Amendment rights of these organizations, and we said that it absolutely did violate the Weldon Amendment, which prohibits HHS funds from going to a state that discriminates against entities that refuse to refer for abortions. Hawaii did the same thing. We reached an accord with Hawaii where their attorney general's office issued an opinion binding on a state where they would not enforce their law, which is similar to California's, against any pro-life pregnancy resource center. So these are the wins that we are are putting on the board because we're finally enforcing these laws. And it's not just a matter of enforcement. It's a matter of institutionalizing these protections. We started a conscience and religious freedom division within the Office for Civil Rights to make sure that these rights are treated at least as well as every other civil right. And we want to see this expand to the rest of the federal agencies to make sure we're changing the culture of government so that not only the little sisters of the poor will never face a similar situation that they face, but that it would become unthinkable, unthinkable for the federal government to do such a thing, to make sure that there's space for everybody of all religious convictions or no religious faith to partner with the federal government. So we're institutionalizing it by having a full division that will enforce these laws. And there are 25 different provisions, 25 that we discovered. And we issued a notice of proposed rulemaking, identified these 25 conscience protection statutes affecting health care that Congress passed, and, and are finally giving them life and, and force. The effective date has been pushed to November 22nd. Um, there have been lawsuits around it, which, to my mind, are baffling, right? These are laws that Congress passed, and these are laws that should be enforced. This should not be controversial. The, uh, whether or not religious liberty and the enforcement of our laws rises and falls should not depend on who, who happens to sit in my office, should not have to depend on having a Trump, uh, President Trump who's very um, uh, forceful and fearless in defending conscience and religious liberty. It shouldn't depend on that. Just like civil rights, we've gotten to a point in our country, thank God where it's really the national consensus, regardless of of the changes in administration. That's where we want to be. And we're setting the stage now. And as we bring these cases forward, and of course, and I say this as every civil right, we also enforce HIPAA. If you believe there's a violation, bring them to OCR. And we'll figure out if there's jurisdiction, if there's statutes, whether it's race, national origin, sex, age, disability, we also now include the exercise of conscience and religious freedom. Those are some of the things we've been doing. Um, We've worked on on these issues in the context of adoption and foster care. We're taking the Religious Freedom Restoration Act seriously. And now we finally open the doors to people of faith and conviction to say they, they now have a place to turn. And because the federal government is willing to help make sure that they are not marginalized for what they believe, I imagine a world in the future that's very different than John Lennon's.
1: So in a moment, I'm going to open this up to two questions. I would ask you uh, to please raise your hand, wait until you get a microphone handed to you. I recognize you. Uh, Then briefly state who you are and then... know we we would welcome someday giving you the opportunity to be a speaker at Heritage but today is not that day so keep whatever it is you're gonna say very very short uh, and end it with a question mark and so while uh, people start to formulate their questions uh, I was thinking why you guys were talking you know the sort of off the top of my head the four most contentious issues that we face in our society that people talk about a lot. So you've got racial preferences and climate change, and then you also have abortion uh, and the beliefs of many religious adherents in a traditional definition of marriage. And you guys are directly implicated in two out of those uh, four. Congratulations to you. You face significant headwinds, I have to say, in that, One, within your own departments, there are probably people who were there and supportive of the positions of the last administration. But you also have the media. A lot of corporate uh, America uh, is against you. And even the language changes. So when, Roger, you were talking about doctors uh, being able to opt out for conscious reasons or, or, or nurses from performing abortions. So when these things are introduced, they are... Compromises or accommodations among people who have reasonable beliefs on both sides of a debate, and today's compromise becomes tomorrow's loophole that has to be closed because there are bigots that are preventing, uh, you know, justice from being done. And I'm wondering, you know, sort of how you deal with those headwinds and what you tell your people. Uh, as they go about doing the job that uh, you have tasked them to do, and it's a general question. I'll open up I've, to any of you.
4: I've, I've given this a lot of thought. I think if you start with the principle of equal dignity and respect for everybody, which, by the way, the source of uh, the origin for me of that concept is a, a religious one. That's that's where it animates in me. Um, if you believe in the equal dignity of every human being, regardless of their walk of life. And then you do not presume the worst, but the best in our motives, that we're all trying, even on these contentious issues, to seek the common good. Right? It helps to take down the temperature a bit. And I've instilled in, I try, my staff, that same attitude. And when I first arrived, I told folks, look, we may be having some different directions on the edges. But when it comes to civil rights, we've been heading westward. We're not going to go eastward all of a sudden. But it may be a little bit northwest or a little bit southwest versus what it was before. But on the core of civil rights, because it's rooted in human dignity, we're still going full speed ahead. But if there's an issue that you disagree with, I believe in conscience. So all my staff, and they know this well, you do not need to work on an issue that violates your conscience. I want everybody to be happy working on civil rights every single day. And taking those sorts of steps to make sure that you're looking out for the best interests of everybody, even those who disagree with you. Um, does a lot. And I've done a lot of outreach with LGBT groups. I have a great relationship with Jocelyn Samuels, my predecessor from the Obama administration. We shared the stage together at the Williams Institute uh, function, the leading LGBT think tank in America. And it was a great event to show that even if we could have different policy prescriptions and policy decisions, we're on the same boat here, right? And we're all in it together. And I think bringing that out will help, I, I, I think, bridge that gap a bit more.
1: Reed, Eric,
3: anything
0: to add to that? Go ahead. At the Department of Education, we, we are blessed with tremendous political staff, and, and the career staff are uh, certainly at senior levels, but throughout the office, general counsel, very conscientious and professional lawyers. And as a result, when, when we talk about things like the rule of law, and about how to read our authorizing statutes, and how regulations—you know, when when it's appropriate to regulate, and when it is it appropriate—some of us would say never—to to issue subregulatory guidance. Uh, the the kind of the, the manner in which the work of our department actually gets done. Uh, yeah, there there are different views on how you re- potentially how far you should go to reading a statute, but but we've not really internally seen um, a lot of of headwind from the attorneys within the OGC. A lot of what our department does uh, is grant making. And so our role by statute often is relatively limited. But what we can do is, as I think I alluded to earlier, is ensure that the law is followed. And that means all provisions of the law. That means statutes. That means our regulations. It also means constitution and constitutional provisions. And to ensure that there is accountability in how uh, money is spent, and that the public fisc is protected, and uh, you know, interestingly, I found that put in those terms, the response internally, you know, political and career, has been very positive.
3: Yeah, um, I I agree with what Roger and Reid said, um, but I want to add just a couple of things. Number one. Much of the work that we do with respect to religious liberty is not particularly controversial. For example, um, when we we sue civilly uh, a state that has prevented a religious organization or institution from building a church, a synagogue, or a mosque due to what we regard as an unlawful land use regulation, uh, our career lawyers, investigators, uh, work very diligently on those cases. Same thing when we prosecute uh, hate, religious motivated hate crimes uh, of which we've seen a lot, particularly anti-Semitic hate crimes. And our team of professionals do wonderful work in that area. Um, In other areas, obviously, sometimes our career attorneys and and, uh, other staff may disagree with the positions that we are taking in a particular case, but they're professionals and they do their duty. Uh, But what I want to talk though really about two other related points uh, with respect to this issue um, Particularly some of the controversial issues John that you mentioned Um, There are times when we have filed um, statements of interest friend of the court briefs or even lawsuits uh, In in very contentious areas that involve say for example conflicts between religious liberty and same-sex marriage for example Um, and my own view of that is that uh, the First Amendment uh, protects uh, the religious (laughs) believers uh, for the reasons that I mentioned when I was at the podium uh, in in the circumstances in which we have participated in, and and, uh, I think the the law, to me, is very clear on that. Uh, Secondly, I took an oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, Uh, and, and, and so I have no problem in any way doing that, and in fact, I'm quite proud to do that, even though it may at various times engender a lot of criticism and hostility. And part of the, the hostility that we see with um, when we, for example, weigh in as we did in the Archdiocese of Indiana case that I mentioned, um, is protected by the free speech protections of the First Amendment. So uh, as part of a free society, I think it's something that as public officials that we should expect and uh, and protect. And so uh, while I do not enjoy uh, the criticism and hostility directed at me, uh, it is something that the First Amendment clearly protects, and uh, and I would not have it any other way.
1: Okay. Audience question? Anybody have anything that they want to ask? <coughs> yeah.
2: Over here. Uh, thank you all very much. Um, uh, this is Sheryl with Epoch Times. And on China, um, media just report that um, the Trump administration is planning to put vision a Chinese company who produce, who manufactures surveillance product uh, to the blacklist, put Vision to the blacklist. And Vision is believed to um, have been getting involved, taking part in, in tremendous human rights, and religious persecution to many religious groups in China, such as uh, Tibetan Uyghurs in Xinjiang and Falun Gong. So could you please um, provide some comment on this new move? Yeah, thank you. I
4: I did did a Falun Gong case when I was at DOJ civil rights. Under Title II, it prohibits discrimination on race national origin, but also religion in public accommodations. And some of the fights that occurred in mainland China, where there's tremendous persecution of all religions that are not under the thumb of the state, including Falun Gong, we saw some of that spill over here, where folks were being kicked out of restaurants in the United States because they were members of Falun Gong. And I took that case, and we won. Um, And so it's 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 definitely an issue that religious discrimination targets, especially minority religions, especially minority religions. So the ones. Um, who get the worst of it. And I saw it in when I was at DOJ Civil Rights. I'm sure you still see it now. And that's why when we say when you, you protect religious conscience and religious freedom for all, it's really advancing diversity because it's really protecting the ones who need it most, and it's usually minorities.
3: Yeah, the only thing I'll add, um, obviously, our jurisdiction here uh, at the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division extends only to the United States. And uh, we we do our best to enforce religious liberty protections in the country. But I want to add one other point, though, that I think is relevant here. Um, The reason we have the uh, free exercise clause of the First Amendment and the establishment clause of the First Amendment is because our founding fathers rejected uh, notions of state tyranny with respect to religion that they viewed uh, as emanating from the English king at the time. Uh, and as part of, I think, living in a free society and, and where we have a government, as Abraham Lincoln so eloquently put it, of the people and by the people and for the people is that we reject dictatorships. We don't accept that in any way. And I think it's been unfortunate in our world history that we've seen over and over again, even up to present time, that in various parts of the world, uh, dictators, uh, emperors, kings and others have... Uh, sought to suppress religious freedom. It's a terrible tragedy in our human history, and it's one that we are fighting every day at the Justice Department to make sure it does not happen here.
0: would only add the Department of Education doesn't regulate or sanction corporations. Um, the problem that you mentioned, though, obviously is, is a significant one. Um, for those who are interested, uh, the Department of Education's uh website has a page dedicated to what we call Section 117, which uh, is statutory requirement that colleges and universities report with respect to foreign donations and foreign gifts um, that are used for a variety of purposes here in the United States and overseas. Uh, and on, on the webpage you'll find a number of, of letters and other investigatory uh, actions this, this administration has taken to ensure that there's transparency with respect to foreign money flowing to U.S. universities. The
1: gentleman had his hand up back here. With regard
0: to U.N., uh, President Trump's speech at U.N., uh, how could the uh, President uh, claim that President, uh, religious liberty demanding liberty, liberty in the world while, the, while he as soon as he became president the first executive order he issued was against uh, six countries with muslim uh, majority to enter, enter this country or disregarding the rights of the palestinians in israel uh, how could uh, that happen
5: or how
0: could uh, he justify it
3: maybe i'll respond briefly um the uh, obviously the, the the work that i do at the civil rights division as i said earlier deals only with domestic affairs uh, and religious freedom in our country um the matter of the travel ban was litigated up to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court's decision stands on that. Um, but what what I can focus on and what i we do focus on are the President's executive order on religious freedom that he issued in May of two thousand and seventeen and directed the Department of Justice to seek religious liberty protections, and that's what we are doing.
4: Yeah. then yes. there should be there should be no doubt about our commitment to make sure that all religious believers are protected, whether they're Muslim, Jewish, Zoroastrian, and non-believers as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I would, would add, although I'm not one of today's uh, speakers, that obviously the Palestinian-Israeli situation is uh, uh, of long-standing and a complicated one. And with respect to the the, the travel ban, you know, there are over 50 majority Muslim. Uh, countries in the world, the largest such as Indonesia and whatnot, Philippines weren't affected, uh, and that what was identified by the officials who who implemented that ban is not that these were majority Muslim countries, uh, it's that they had very poor or no relations with us and did not do proper vetting. Uh, of people who were coming to our shores, and that there were known terrorist elements operating in those countries. So I, you know, obviously, the, the challengers to the travel ban portrayed that differently, uh, but the administration's view was, I believe, as I just articulated it, and the administration prevailed. Had another hand over here. Thank you.
0: Uh, my name is Mark Disler. Uh, I was formerly a deputy in the Civil Rights Division under uh, Brad Reynolds and the great Attorney General Ed Meese. And I'm, my question for the three of you is, what kind of feedback have you gotten from the Hill, especially in the last 10 months, uh, about what you're doing, what kind of uh, oversight, harassment, or, or whatever?
3: Uh... I haven't heard too much from Capitol Hill.
1: <laughs> haven't heard or haven't listened. No, I
3: mean, no, I mean, let me let me let me add. Uh, I, I testified in front of a House subcommittee a few months ago. One of the members suggested that the administration was hostile to civil rights. I responded that I thought such a statement was uh, inaccurate and offensive, and that was basically the end of it.
0: UNDER OUR CONSTITUTIONAL SYSTEM, CONGRESS HAS CERTAIN OVERSIGHT RIGHTS AND RESPONSIBILITIES. Um, OUR VIEW IS THAT that WHAT PROPERLY EXERCISES ARE GOOD AND HEALTHY, ALL POWER NEEDS TO BE CHECKED. Um, OUR DEPARTMENT HAS HAD OUR SHARE OF – NO MORE THAN OUR SHARE, BUT OUR SHARE OF uh, OVERSIGHT ISSUES. Uh, ONE IN PARTICULAR, I BELIEVE, RELATED TO um, certain of our actions to ensure um, uh, religious liberty and to address uh, constitutional issues and some of the statutes that we administer. Uh, but uh, by and large, you know, we've been able to accomplish <laughs> what, what we need to accomplish in order to carry out our mission, mm-hmm. with all respect to our friends and, and And Congress, they do have a
4: duty of oversight. We respect that duty they have, uh, we are stewards of public funds, taxpayer funds, and they need to know how we're spending it and on what, is it lawful, et cetera. So that's perfectly fine, and it's actually a very good exchange. It, It makes us better knowing that we have to answer for what we do. And the fact that Congress, members of Congress are asking these questions shows that we're being effective. If they weren't asking any questions, we wouldn't be doing anything of importance. So I think that's actually a good way of looking at it. It's it's a it's a, it's a good give and take, and it only exists because we're actually being effective in accomplishing big things.
1: Say hand up over here. Thank you. Hold on, Sean if you get a microphone,
5: okay. Uh, my name is Sean Ling from uh Falun Dafa Association in Washington D.C. And Mr. Sorolino, thank you for your efforts for the case in Falun you know, Falun Gong being expelled. You remember that? Yeah, I remember that. And it was very uh, big encouragement for the practitioners there. Thank you. And uh, in last June, actually, uh, the tribunals in UK actually uh, made the conclusion that uh, organ harvesting is still happening in a large, significant scale in China. And many of the medical institutions in the United States have been engaging, collaborating, and training Chinese medical doctors. And even though they pledged they will stick to the medical ethics in the United States, when they went back to China, they still committed to these organ harvestings. So I'm just wondering, from HHS perspective, any regulation can actually, you know, limit this practice? The, thank, you. thank you.
4: Not so directly.
5: Um, there is
4: a provision in our re- conscience regulation with respect to advanced directives. And it's really deferring to state law that exists. And several of our, our statutes are of that form. If there's a state law with religious liberty protection, then it must be followed if you're receiving federal funds. So it could come up in that way in advanced directives. But it does illustrate a point that, as I mentioned earlier, when it's an issue of life and death, that's when the religious liberty questions really come up. Really, they—they, they, I mean, there's no avoiding it. Um, we have an exception under HIPAA, because we enforce HIPAA as well, where clergy can go through hospitals without violating HIPAA. Now, why do we do that? Because when it comes to issues of life and, life and death, the religious impulse needs to be accommodated, needs to be accommodated, because it is so important to so many people. Um, so I could look at what we've done with advanced directives to take some view on that, but the, the greater point remains that this is why we need conscience protections um, for these most important, deepest questions that affect the ultimate questions of who we are, right? When we, when we ask the question who God is, we're also at the same time saying who we are, you know, and, and that question should be left to the individuals to seek the truth and, and as they best see it without the government discriminating or funding discrimination when people reach a conclusion.
1: We'll give the last question to this young lady over here.
2: Hi, my name is Mary Margaret Olahan. I'm the social issues reporter at the Daily Caller News Foundation. Um, I have a question mainly for the Department of Education, I guess. Um, so you talk about a lot of religious liberty issues, uh, especially in higher ed, but what I'm really curious about is uh, some religious liberty issues in sex education in public schools, you know, where they're starting with children as young as kindergarten um, and teaching them different things, such as in California, about really graphic sexual um, acts, really graphic descriptions, um, teaching them that they're allowed to get abortions without parental consent. Um, And this isn't just in California, this is in several other United States schools. Um, So I'm just wondering if the Department of Education has any plans to address these types of um, religious liberty issues, and um, what are your thoughts on this matter? Thank you.
0: Well, that's quite a question. The Department of Education, certainly under this administration, under this office general counsel, and under this secretary, uh, is very careful about reading its authority as far and only as far as the statutes take it. Um, the often unintended consequences of kind of trying to get out of your lane as a government department, we've seen that play out over multiple administrations over many, many years, as John is well aware. And we've worked very, very hard to ensure that um, we cabin what administrative agencies generally do. Our department, uh, over and over in our statutes, Congress says that, that what goes on in local K-12 schools, respect to curriculum is a local matter and that the federal government uh, should not be involved in or dictating to k through 12 schools what they teach and the parents and teachers and administrators at the local level are ultimately responsible for what is presented to their children I think that that actually is is normatively right. It puts tremendous responsibility on parents to pay attention to what their children are being taught. Uh, Secretary DeVos has made it perhaps her centerpiece: uh, the notion that uh, all parents should be able to choose whether they are rich or poor, educational options that work for their children, and so uh, we have. A variety of, uh, We're working on a variety of scholarship programs and, and encouraging the development of charter schools and, and other uh, similar educational options. But at the end of the day, what goes on in the California schools or what goes on in New Jersey or wherever uh, has to be first and foremost the responsibility of the parents who are sending their children there, not, not the federal government and not the Federal Department of of Education.
1: Gentlemen, I want to thank you for your public service, for what you do, and for being here today.